in continuing coverage of the Mighty Dream Form live interview series. Uh, that was my news recorder broadcaster <laughs> type of guy, and that was that was all I could come up with. How did I do WFFS? Thank you for joining, everybody. WFFS. What for okay. Fervent Four Show? But why did you put the W in there? Because uh, like uh, W, all, all the do, radio do stations know, and TV. Do you know stations, this? I don't know. Do you know why? Do you know why? They, no. Okay, so there's two. Okay, I, I will tell you this. Here's a little bit of knowledge. We did not know that this was going to come on, but the W is all of the cities east of the Mississippi and west of the Mississippi are K's. I think there's a couple in there that are screwed up, but that 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 that's why. And so that's where all letters come from. Anyway, this is the second um, edition of the Mighty Dream Forum Fervent Four Show Live. Uh, this one is with someone um, local to the area as well. Actually, all three, I guess, are local to the area. Yeah. Um, Jacob Marshall of um, many many claims to fame, musician incredible storyteller actually like i could like i was listening and i was just like man i hope people appreciate how good of storytelling he's doing in this yeah and like you Maybe can just tell he's on a global creative. scale yeah i i don't think i said this during the interview but i was just thinking to myself i think it would be important for people not just to listen to this episode or listen to how he articulates things but also like listen to good storytellers, maybe listen to good music, uh, to, to good comedians, how they tell that story and try to really get behind that because it, it yeah. was, I, you know, you sit back, we didn't have popcorn, but I could have just been eating some popcorn. Well, and that's the whole thing. So one of the things that we talked about on the previous uh, live episode, episode 134 was we didn't know who we we're going to interview until a couple minutes beforehand. So we, so any time that we had to prepare who we were interviewing, getting some questions lined up, what their background was, you know, all that was kind of thrown out the window and we just had to roll with the punches in the crazy. It, it was great. Every single one of those interviews was awesome uh, in their own right. But yeah, I mean, when you, after talking to Jacob, there is after the fact, I'm like, gosh, I would have loved to ask this question or that question because he was such a great storyteller and he has done so much during his time on, on earth. What do you say? 1500 performances in his life as a musician of multiple bands. Maybe that was just the band may in that aspect. I had met him 11 ish years before you had met him a couple of days before. Yeah. Um, I met him on the first night. And, and so interesting story about that was, uh, he, uh, he said, yeah, I, uh, I was in a band and I was like, Oh, I was and I was like, so have you ever played the Norva since the Norva was just right across the street? And he's like, oh, many, many times, which led me to ask, well, who have you played with? And then he right on his phone, he had a, a, a note section uh, section on his phone. And then he showed me the list of people that he had performed with. And oh. yeah, crazy. I mean, from what were some Foo, of the people? Uh, oh. Foo Fighters, uh, Katy Perry. Uh, I mean, I mean, it was just like. Just a, it was an, an, I felt like I was scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. Wow. It was really, really impressive. Um, the bands that he has played with. And I can only imagine, you know, one, what you've learned along the way. And then two, uh, just 
the stories created just from from having that experience. That 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 is something I look at that from a mentorship perspective too. So a lot of people will say your mentor has to be someone that you know that you talk with whatever. I think because of the way the the ways that we can um, obtain media and media is like pieces of content, a book, uh, a show like this, uh, any kind of broadcast, whatever. I think you can look at those people as mentors, like at maybe your digital mentors, and you can learn and grasp so much from it. And so it's, it's yeah. an incredible thing that um, I hope more people start to think of like, oh, that person is helping guide me through this because they've been there before. Um, so Jacob Marshall, uh, I don't know what to... Um, you know, tag him as just like uh, amazing storyteller is how I would say it. And um, local hero, maybe done a lot. And uh, it was, it was a great episode. And so it was good to catch up with him. So yeah, that was a, it was, it was a ton of fun. Yeah. All right. Coming up next, we got Jacob Marshall. Somewhere. Coming. Jacob, what's up, buddy? So I, I learned early in my business career, maybe even in life, someone said, don't ever burn a bridge. And I think in, in, in business, I maybe burned a bridge once in my entire life. And I probably don't regret that either, but that's okay. But it's interesting is I met Jacob at an event of mine, uh, November 11th of 2011. It was the very first start Norfolk. It was like a build a company in a weekend competition. And I had met him uh, and his band at the time, River James, at a, at a Grow event somewhere on this street. And at that event, I went up to one of you guys and said, hey, I'm doing this event. We'd love to have you guys come play it. And, and you guys played the opening night of that event. And I haven't seen you, I don't think, since. I've actually done some work with your sister. So your sister, at least when... Uh, uh, I was doing this, was working with my book publisher uh, for Anomaly, and it's just crazy that, you know, 12 years later, here we are, basically to the day, 11 years later, and, you know, don't burn those bridges, so you never know when situations are going to come full circle. Indeed. I got nothing <laughs> to say. It's just an interesting uh, piece to think about. I remember that. I remember that night well, and I felt like that was the beginning of really a hub for startup culture in the area. Because it was a novel idea at the time. And yeah. embracing the hackathon model, like the rapid prototyping, just the format of it was just fresh. And, in an unfinished uh, building, it was, it was yeah. very interesting. Yeah. Tim wasn't there then, I didn't even, I, yeah, I went I hadn't even met one. Tim. Yeah. But I, we've known each other like two days. So, and, and it feels good. Yeah. I mean, so that's here for that, again, the, the thing that I love so much about being part of Mighty Dream is just meeting so many new people in such positive energy. And we were talking and you're like, yeah, I'm in a band. And then, yeah. So as soon as I got home that night, I went into Apple Music, put in May. And man, I was like, dude, that's a great sound, man. I dig it. So uh, that was super cool. With so let's catch us up on the last eleven years. What have you been doing uh, ever since then? So um, it's amazing because you both reference different bands, and May was definitely the band that has had the bulk of my attention throughout the years. We actually started here in Norfolk, Virginia, um, in two thousand one. So from two thousand one to two thousand eleven, that was my full time. Uh, 
occupation and creative endeavor. We actually, this is funny, I, I counted. We played over 1,600 concerts on five continents. Wow. Put out eight albums. This was, you know, full-time, full-focused endeavor. And right around 2011, May had decided to go on a break, and um, a friend of mine had reached out from another band about starting this other project, River James. Also pulling its name, of course, from the river that flows right through where I grew up in, in Newport News. And, um, and so that was one of the first shows we ever played, like together, was at that Start Norfolk event. And so you wanna hear about the, the last 11 years. In a nutshell, once May had kind of wound down, River James uh, did some shows, we did some tours, we put out some music, but all of us you know, were, were exploring other things at the same time. And for me, what I was really interested in was the changing nature of the relationship between an audience and a, a creator or an artist. And what the internet was doing that was disruptive on the business side of music was also disrupting the notion that there was a wall between an artist on stage and their audience out there somewhere. And was allowing for a new kind of collaboration between us if we wanted that. And so for the entire last two years uh, of May really going full time, this was like 2009 and 10, uh, we decided to do things very differently and release music a song at a time, basically like these, these chapters in a story that were unfolding over the course of a year. And every month we'd release a new chapter of the story. We would invite our fans to contribute whatever they were able to for the song, really kind of leaning into what Radiohead had explored with their In Rainbows record and just saying like, hey, pay, pay what you're able to. But in our case, we took all of that money and we used it to collaborate with our fans on different social or humanitarian uh, campaigns, like the idea of actually solving a problem together. And we started by building a home with Habitat for Humanity, simply from the sale of music to our fans, and then building that home with our fans and this amazing family in Newport News. And I think that set a a kind of trajectory for me of just recognizing, wow, when you, when you allow for the storytellers and the culture creators, the, the musical artists, the, the people who put feelings into form, to be the storytellers and the ones convening or inviting a group of people to go on a journey together into something new, into something collaborative, into something that's um, truly manifesting a difference, that creates an energy that's contagious. And after that uh, chapter, you know, we had accomplished a lot of different things. We knew we were going into a hiatus, but I felt that energy that had happened. And I was like, I want to lean into this. I want this to grow. Um, and so I was very fortunate to meet a young man from Australia, actually, who had landed in New York. And in Australia, he had just hosted a concert. He was like maybe 20, 
two at this time and um, had hosted a concert in Australia. Ended up being the largest concert in Australian history. It was 100,000 people to see Bono and the Edge and Pearl Jam. And the reason was he had created a campaign called Make Poverty History. And Australia at the time um, was contributing the least in terms of their overall GDP, the least percentage of their budget as a government to foreign aid commitments and in, in helping to eradicate extreme global poverty. So this young man, Hugh, approached the challenger, prime minister, and said, if you are willing to commit on stage to doubling the investment that Australia makes in ending extreme global poverty, we'll give you this stage, but you need to make that commitment. He did, he won, and that unlocked three and a half billion dollars in a concert, Wow! right? So when you think about the way that a lot of charity events typically go, it's like a group of people in a room, you're trying to get as much money as possible from these people in the room, you know, a charity auction or any number of different things. But the paradigm shift that happened in that moment was a recognition that the real resources needed to tackle something on the scale of extreme global poverty, which is not one thing in isolation, right? You can't just put water in a village somewhere without addressing food systems, education, access to medicine. All of these things are interconnected, right? And it's their interconnection that leads to this being a systemic issue over time. So you have to address it holistically. And to do that requires resources. And you're not gonna get that at a charity concert. But if you can leverage the energy of a large group of people to demand very specific actions to be taken and resources to be unleashed, you can do crazy things. So we set about to create and produce um, a concert on the Great Lawn of Central Park. It's a beautiful space, the city is a backdrop, and we were able to get 60,000 people to come and not pay for a ticket, but take an action to earn their ticket. And the way that the actions went about was the artists that we had brought in, and that first year we had, we had uh, an artist named Kanon, we had uh, John Legend, we had the Black Keys, we had Band of Horses, we had Foo Fighters, and we had Neil Young and Crazy Horse, right? And we had each of these artists reaching out to their fans saying, will you specifically reach out to this prime minister in Norway and say, we demand $400 million more towards girls' education? because we know that she already wants to do that. She's already made a, con a commitment. That commitment's probably like 200 million. So we're saying, in mass, can we get millions of people to call upon her to increase that by two or three times? This method has been so effective because the concert happens at the end of September 
when all of the world leaders are gathered for the UN General Assembly to make their commitments to each other about what they're gonna do in the year to come to address our biggest problems. So we were able to use that stage and the 60,000 people is one thing, but the broadcast deal that we had created, let this be seen by over 100 million people around the world. And that's an audience that as a leader, you want to make a commitment to. And so over the last 10 years, that model has been able to raise over $40 billion of new funding to address these issues at that scale. So that's taken a lot of time over the last 11 years. Amazing. My mind is thinking right now, I'm like, so what can we do? You as our advisor here, what can we do to replicate that and put that in Norfolk, build upon Mighty Dream, to continue to grow the audience, build the density so that we can take what started here to the next level? As an advisor, how would you answer that? So we took a huge step forward in answering that yesterday with the announcement of something in the water coming back. Now the reason that that's important is because now, as this continues, we're gonna have a convening every fall here of leaders from various industries, represent massive amounts of resource, not just capital, but intellectual and uh, cultural. And that combination of financial capital, intellectual capital, cultural capital, in conversation, in relationship, in exploration actively about how to make a difference, that's literally what created the Renaissance. The Medici family, this banking family in Italy, inviting the philosophers, the scientists, the astronomers, the artists, the musicians of their day to a dinner table. And the conversation is fascinating because nobody's stuck in their silo of expertise. They're all there to ask questions and offer their perspective, but in a way that everybody at the table can generally understand. And I feel like that's the nature of what Mighty Dream is attempting to do. But then to have also the flip side of that, to take that out to a large group of people and to invite the country, the world, to come here in the spring with that festival, that to me is kind of like an inhale and an exhale, right? We're inhaling the nutrients, the wisdom, the resource here at Mighty Dream. And then we're exhaling the expression that comes out of that, you know, yeah. in something in the water. So I'm excited to see that almost function like a, a system, a living system. And I see that not being exploitative or extractive, but actually like something that's nourishing this community right here, right now, as people are engaged and, and plugged in. And then as that creative community kind of like breathes out, a whole lot of people are gonna be inspired by that energy, just like they were on year one. It's interesting, so uh, I'm sure a lot of people have been to meetings or, or events with the thought leaders, the people who are in charge, that they, they want very similar things. But it's very difficult to get an action. It's more of just, hey, we're doing this thing, thanks for your support, yada, yada, yada. 
This is taking it to that next level. You're getting the people in the room. You're getting the people at the Renaissance table, and we've seen that in the past, but I don't think we've seen it to that next level. How do you get them to then take those next steps, to have those conversations, to make those pledges in the way that you've seen over the last 11 years? Because I think there has been a collection of people doing things, but doing things hasn't necessarily led to the thing, if you will, or you know, something bigger or magical. And so how, how do you facilitate that actual action to happen? So over the last eight years, I've uh, spent a lot of time on the board of an organization called The Future of Storytelling. And it was really born um, from the mind of this guy, Charlie Melcher, who's spent a lot of time in the book publishing world and was really facing an existential crisis with his business as it entered the digital age. And he was like, are there you know, people even going to read books in a physical form in 10 years? We don't know, right? So the, the bottom of that industry was falling out. And he said, we can't be the only ones thinking about how drastically this migration into a digital world is going to be for our industry. So he had been to TED a number of times, and he just had this insight moment where he's like, the, the problem with TED is you've got 1,500 geniuses sitting in the dark listening to somebody have a conversation or tell you a story, which is great, except you're missing the potent energy of these 1,500 people being in the room together at the same time. So what if we flipped the format and had a gathering where 600 of the top minds in storytelling and technology from around the world would convene together, but they would have already watched 20 talks or ideas from leaders from all of these different facets of what was emerging, and you got to self-select the three that were most relevant and interesting to you, and instead of listening to a talk, you participate in a roundtable with 20 to 25 other leaders who had also self-selected to be in that particular conversation. And that flip resulted in an explosion of action. And if I was to offer any advice at a format level for the future of this gathering is less main stage conversation and more small groups gathering to find out how to take action together. Because everybody here can watch one of those conversations online before an event and choose to dive deep in action and in figuring out how to make something cool happen together when we're convened. Yeah, because as I, as I hear this, I'm just, I'm, a lot of founders listen to this podcast and we're always talking, it's about building that business. Do you have a customer? Do you, how, are those, how is that customer growth happening? And, and so this is very similar and you with, your uh, music background, I mean, you have to, when you're uh, performing and you're live, you have to focus on those people that are in the audience and they, you have to give them the time of their life so that they, you just grow over time. And it's not necessarily thinking about who's not there, but it's focusing on who is there and leveraging that power. So the same holds true when you're building a business. It's when you have your customers, you focus on them not the people that you don't have, and then we can continue to build and build and build. Is it, 
when you, through your musical uh, history, it's like, was that, was that a learning process for you? Did you have mentors to, to have to figure all this stuff out? Or? So I would say my whole journey has been um, a conversation with different mentors along the way. And some of those mentors were professors or teachers or collaborators. Um, I don't know if you ever saw Good Will Hunting, mm -hmm. but <laughs> some of them are dead, you know? A kind of mentor or leader who's written a book from 200 years ago or 100 years ago could also play a deeply important and influential role. So kind of having the conversations, but also having looked for wisdom in all of the places it may be buried in books or songs from the past or stories, you know, and, and, and allowing those things to help shine the spotlight. But here's the thing. All of the answers exist. They're out there. But they don't mean anything to us unless we're asking the questions, right? So our journey is about getting to the questions that prompt us to find the answers. And I feel like that's one of the things that, as somebody who's committed to lifelong learning, was an early insight that did two things. One, it gave me a profound sense of perpetual humility, because you can never know everything, and a recognition that, through that humility, the further you get into knowing anything, the paradox is that the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Dude, I, I, I've been thinking about that very statement for so long, and I'm like, gosh, yeah, I, know, I know I'm getting smarter because I, I am that, that continuous learning process, but at the same time, it's like the more I learn, the more I realize that I don't know, and I'm like, do I know anything at all? And if you did know everything at this exact moment, in two hours, thousands of people around the world are going to invent something that changes the game and makes you need to, to discover it all over again, right? So life isn't static, it's fluid. So the way we learn, we could never hold all of the information of the world, right? So and even if we could, the context is constantly changing, which means to navigate that successfully, we need to remain open, humble, and curious. Storytelling is something that I can just hear you articulating. You're, you're, you know how to tell the story. I, I've been to many concerts, an opening act, there's 15 people in the crowd, or even if it's a big crowd, no one's interacting whatsoever. In those situations, how do you as an artist, as a musician, maybe even uh, as uh, just a creator, get that crowd to react the way that you want to? Or, or what's something that you've learned from that scenario that's helped, helped you over the last two decades? Energy is contagious. And when you are fully committing to having your best time in that moment, that energy is contagious. People often ask, like, how does something go viral? Did it make you smile? Did it make you laugh? Because if it did, there's a good chance you're gonna wanna send that to somebody, right? Art in all its forms, whether it's stories or poems or a song or a film, it's just like a little vessel that holds part of the human experience, part of the human spirit. And if you articulate what it is that you are genuinely passionate about or find ironic or sad or scary, and you put it in that vehicle and you kind of send it genuinely out in the world, that is going to connect and resonate with somebody. 
it may piss some people off, right? Because like, it's all in energy. And the thing about you learn from music is, is all energy is either in resonance, in harmony, or it's in dissonance, right? And so sometimes the thing that is very true for you and very pure for you, you send out in that little vehicle of a song or a story or a film, it lands on somebody else and they are like not into it. But that's okay too, because it's a reaction. Right, and if you, if you have the opportunity to share that genuine thing with somebody, their reaction may not be anything like what you expected or what you intended, but what I've learned over time is that that reaction changes the meaning of the songs I've been a part of writing. Because I start with something I think it means, and then you hear somebody's story of how they experienced it, interpreted it, integrated it into their own life, and that is the conversation that allows it to never get old for me being on stage playing that song. Because it's still alive. It is an unfolding, evolving work. And every time it's performed, its meaning changes. Yeah, I, when, when I talk to founders, like one of the things that I'm always asking them, are you having fun? Are you having fun? You, you, when you're in business and you start something, you have to have fun doing it. It's going to be a grind, and you're going to have bad days, but it's amazing. As soon as you start having fun, the business just clicks, and it just, it just goes. Absolutely. If you're a founder and, and you want to attract the best talent, you should be having the most fun. You should be able to clearly, just through the way you exist in the world, be able to invite people into that co-imagining, co-creating, because that's the only way things of great significance get done, right? And that in evolves through the way that we share that vision, which comes back to your point about storytelling. That's why storytelling is so important. Yeah, I mean, the black party, or the black party last night was fun. I mean, there's just, and you just felt the energy, and yeah. you can't help but talk about it and share it. And practically, one of the, one of the things I, I heard on this stage yesterday that really stuck with me and I think is worth revisiting for just a second. It's kind of a recognition that all work is hard at certain points, right? To solve a difficult challenge in the world as a founder, as an entrepreneur, it's hard. So the smartest thing that you can do early in your career is to find the intersection of that hard thing and something you love. So if you're in technology, like, you can use technology to solve a lot of different problems. But if you want your career to feel fulfilling holistically, find the way in which that discipline that you're learning and applying to business intersects with something that you love. Have you always been positive? You seem like a very positive person. Uh, it, did, did a, is it a light switch? Did it just turn on at some point? Uh, because I think a lot of people don't see a lot of positivity. Sure, it's contagious, just like you said. It's a, it, you learn that from the energy that you give on stage is, is what people see as contagious. And is that something that you just always had? What happens when you're around a negative person? Like, like That energy is also contagious. The negative right? energy. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. of course. And there's a lot of that in the world right now. And so the antidote to that 
the thing that has allowed me to remain positive in the face of knowing that there are so many challenges that we're up against is the fact that people who have dealt with things much harder than I will ever have to have found a resilience and a capacity to keep moving forward, to have a dream that they keep moving towards. And I'll say this, during uh, the pandemic in New York, this is where I, I live now, I grew up here, but been in New York for the last 10 years. That was a really hard moment for the city. And in particular, the healthcare workers. In addition to being involved with that future of storytelling community, there's another community that I've spent a lot of time mentoring in. Uh, there's the first like art cultural museum led incubator program for young artists working at the intersection of art, technology, design, and impact. And one of my mentees in that program was working on a project at Mount Sinai Hospital. And then as COVID came crashing down on us, the head of innovation for the whole hospital system reached out to us and said, we're not ready for what's about to happen. Our doctors, our nurses are not prepared for what is about to come crashing down on us. And we don't have the resources to really support them. So we're gonna to have to try something profoundly different. I'm gonna shut my lab down. It's a 3,000 square foot lab in the sub-basement of Mount Sinai. And I want you to come in and make art in the space, make beauty in the space, create a sanctuary in the space where they can come and just spend 15 minutes between shifts and have an environment and experience that is different than the trauma that they are undergoing for the other 20 hours of the day that they're there. We moved in literally the next day and spent the year on the front lines with the doctors and nurses in the hospital, building these spaces, working as artists with doctors and neuroscientists to understand the healing potential of artistry on our mental health and resilience. And what I learned through that process, to answer your question, this is all coming back, we all experience trauma. We don't all get PTSD after trauma, right? Post-traumatic stress disorder. That means is that a stressful experience has created a memory in our body that some other situation may trigger and create that destabilizing feeling in our body even though there's no threat present, right? It's like a reverberation or a memory of that trauma that just gets reactivated over and over and over again. Turns out that some people have a condition called post-traumatic growth. And post-traumatic growth is actually the most resilient people on the planet. These are people who have not had a life free of trauma. Like they have gone through the trauma, but they were able to somehow survive that trauma in a way that gave them an almost superhuman level of resilience. In our case, in our work, what we, what we figured out was that that difference 
had to do with whether or not you could find an escape, a respite, a bubble, a safety in the midst of the trauma to escape to. And it wasn't just to escape. It actually turns out there's a very specific brain state in which the brain heals itself in the midst of trauma. And this was my favorite part of the whole thing. It turns out this state is called soft fascination. If you can allow the brain to enter the state of soft fascination, it will heal itself in the midst of trauma. Now, how do we experience soft fascination? What even is that, right? Soft fascination is the wind moving through the grass. It is a fire that holds your attention with its beauty, its resilience, its color, its motion. But you aren't trying to think about it, right? You're not trying to solve a problem. There's not a hard fascination where you are like really focused on something. There's a softness to it. It's the way light hits water, right? So in that moment, your brain is not trying to solve anything, but it is focused. There's a focus on a kind of complexity, a beauty. And in that state, we were able to take people in 15 minutes using just fragrances and projections and light and music that we had created and lower their stress levels by 60%, which was enough to keep them from going into PTSD and allow them to go into post-traumatic growth, right? So what gives me hope is not the fact that negative things happen and, and maybe there's a way to have less negative things in the world. I do believe that. But what gives me hope is the fact that there are ways of navigating the complexity that we face on a daily basis and tools that we're still learning that give us a kind of power to navigate that and maintain health. Doesn't sound like you've worked a day in your life. <laughs> there have been plenty of moments of exhaustion and I would say even burnout along the way. I had to learn that lesson myself first. And my own moments of extreme exhaustion and burnout were what led me to even begin to ask the questions about what roles could music or art play in terms of how we heal, how we maintain our mental and physical health. I would have never considered that relationship otherwise, but it really often does come from our own points of pain. And that's a lesson I think any founder can appreciate. Yeah, it's fascinating when you think about art and when they take that away from the schools because of funding. I mean, that creativity process to allow kids to just imagine different ways to solve problems as opposed to this is how you have to think, and it's just replication. I mean, it's just, uh, the art is, it's fascinating. Uh, yeah, the impacts that it has way beyond anything you would ever imagine. I, um, if I can share just kind of one little story as we, um, I don't know if we're almost out of time or not, but. Yep. Okay, so the last thing yeah. I'll, I'll just yeah. share is this, this current chapter of life. Um, I've, I've entered that founder state, right? So I actually just raised venture capital for a company that is using Web3 technology to focus on the development of new narrative media, new story media. So 
television series, films, video games, and to be able to create a mechanism that de-risks the green lighting of truly innovative content from creators and cultures around the world that don't normally have access to Hollywood and allow that de-risking to let the Netflix executive or the HBO executive say, okay, I see that there's actually a significant amount of support for this content. Like, that's a, a different conversation, right? So this, for me, is a, an example of that intersection of something that I'm extremely passionate about and a problem that exists in the world and a new technology that I didn't create, but I am leveraging in service of a need that I know exists in the world. And if I do that successfully with this incredible team, then we will see more interesting stories. We'll see more representation. We'll see more women behind the camera, more people of color included in IMDB with credits that put them in the ecosystem of a sustainable career in media, right? And it's, it's a changing world in terms of the way we consume and participate and engage with media. But what is so clear is that stories are the fundamental thing that allow us to be human together. It's a thing that shapes our world and we inherit a bunch of stories, right? We inherit the story of America. <laughs> like it's a thing that none of us created, but we all kind of arrived into here. We inhabit stories, like with our actions, the way that we choose to put our energy into a story. But then there's this other space where we get to imagine stories. And it's in that space of imagination that I feel like the answers to the many problems that we do face will be addressed in a way that allow people to feel like they can participate and being a part of those solutions. There you go. Jacob, appreciate that. It's been it's a pleasure. Hopefully it won't be 11 years until we see each other again. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure to thank be you. here. Thank you. Come back home. <laughs> yeah. I'm here, baby. Thank you.